Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Over uh, 20 years ago, back uh, in the late uh, 1990s, um, I wrote to scientists around the world that I'd heard were creationists and asked them why they chose to believe in a literal six-day creation only thousands of years ago. And um, that book, of course, has uh, been published for, you know, since the late 1990s under the title In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And um, it's a, uh, a bestseller. Uh, it's been a bestseller for all these times, in the area of creation, that is. And one of the contributors to that uh, book was Dr. Andy McIntosh. Now, Dr. McIntosh now is an emeritus professor of thermodynamics at the University of Leeds, and um, he'd worked there for quite some time. He'd uh, done a lot of research in the area of uh, combustion theory and uh, aerodynamics, um, and his speciality, of course, is is mathematics. And in particular, uh, he did a lot of work on the bombardier beetle, um, which fires this explosive charge. And uh, his work actually inspired uh, inspired a patented novel, Spray Technology. And um, he's also done quite a bit of work investigating the fundamental link between thermodynamics and information. And uh, he publishes and writes quite a lot. Dr. Andy McIntosh, and as I said, he holds not only a PhD, uh, but also a DSC, a, a Doctor of Science as well. And it's interesting that one of the things, as he began writing like he contributed to my book then, uh, you know, 24 years ago or nearly 25 years ago, um, and he uh, has published his his own book uh, and a a couple of books um, on, um, you know, the the scientific evidence for creation. And uh, he's, uh, as I said, Dr. Andy McIntosh. It's worth looking up. Uh, Google him on uh, on um, you know, on the internet, and uh, you can get a lot of information about him. Very, very learned mathematician, and a very, very strong uh, creationist um, who's really good at, at summarising the evidence for creation. And I noticed that when he started doing this, there was a lot of opposition at the uni. Um, and with other staff. As a matter of fact, they want to sort of close him down, I think, at one stage and and uh, deprive him of his position at the uni and, and all this sort of thing. And it's very interesting. I think we all need to become aware that there's this growing movement out there that if you uh, disagree with someone, you... Um, you know, it's sort of hate speech or or something like that. Um, so it, it's very difficult to voice an opinion now on particularly issues that people deem as being controversial, such as creation versus evolution. And, you know, there are other issues as well. That if you disagree with the, the, the most popular view, then you must be in the wrong. And so it's interesting that truth is almost being decided on by popular vote, in a way. But a lot of this popular vote is being influenced by the media 
which again has uh, been uh, seeing some of the you know research articles on this. When we look at the media and the way the internet works, the idea is to get you to keep going back to sites on the internet. So there seems to be there's sort of evidence. A lot of these sites are designed to feed you the the information that uh, that you want to hear, and this makes it um, more and more challenging to in actual fact, um, spread the growing evidence that we have that evolution is absolutely impossible and never and didn't occur. You know, there is the, the evidence that we were created is overwhelming. And also the, the evidence that the earth is, is very young is, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, prima facie evidence, you know, just the rate of population growth and the earth's, uh, and the population that we have. Um, you know, running, uh, running back uh, again fits with the the Earth only being, you know, thousands of years old. Um, erosion rates, all these sort of things that we can measure. There's so many obvious things um, that um, uh, fit um, the the Bible account. No, I was reading an account just the other day too of um, evidence from um, ice cores and, and, and this sort of thing around Mount Kilimanjaro um, that, or, or that um, suggested that, again, there was a, a major drought in, in Africa. I forget exactly where the ice cores were, but there, were, there was some evidence there um, from um, that, again, if, that Africa had had this massive drought about the time of, of uh, Joseph um, and uh, Pharaoh there. So that was interesting. I'm still following up the, the research on um, and the actual evidence for that. But, well, you know, historically, when we look at the, you know, the books of Luke, for example, in the Bible, um, the the dates and the places and the people that they talk about, you know, all verified by secular historical records. And, you know, so much of the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we have the old manuscripts, uh, copies of old manuscripts that have been preserved, they have the prophecies that were fulfilled. Um, so there's all the time we're just finding more and more evidence to support the historical accuracy of the Bible and to support evidence for supernatural uh, creation. But it seems that there is so much of a delay in getting this information out into the mainstream and, and certainly um, into, the, into the popular media um, I was reading um, just recently too the the story of Mary Slessor, this um, uh, young um, uh, woman from I think she was from Scotland, from somewhere in England anyway, that went to the Congo or that part of uh, Af- or to Africa there. It might have been Nigeria as well um, as a single woman back in the eighteen hundreds, and um, and converted the uh, the cannibal tribes that were there. Uh, and a number of uh, missionaries, uh, male missionaries, had been killed beforehand. And um, but the um, you know her her life and answers to prayer, um, as she uh, talks about um, these um, these things, we see so much evidence for the benefit that Christianity has has brought to the world. Uh, in many ways, you know, the hospitals and so forth. And yet there's this growing evidence that seems to um, want to 
not in our education system forget all the amazing benefits of, of Christianity and perhaps look at some of the negative things where people who were called Christians or called themselves Christians did bad things. And um, you need to know that, of course, that doesn't fit in with the, the message that Jesus gave uh, for us to love one another, to feed uh, the hungry, to help the poor, um, to be fair, to be just, to support justice. Um, these were all the, the principles of, of Christianity, of course, that led to Western civilization and um, led to the uh, abolition of slavery and and cannibalism and uh, all these sort of things that were being, pra- and, you know, um, one of the things that Mary Slessor uh, put an end to were, um, you know, child sacrifices. It was thought that if a, uh, if a mother had twins, that one of the babies must have been fathered by was a was a devil child must have been fathered by an evil spirit and and so um, you know the twins were uh, put to death so um, you know practices like this uh, Christians played a major role in um, ending these terrible uh, practices and yet um, we're we're forgetting. Um, the role that um, the Christianity and and people that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the influences that they've had on the world, and one of the things I want to talk about uh, this was just uh, recently too. I read an article on the year by Dr. Andy McIntosh, and he brings out some points that um, I um, you know wasn't wasn't aware of. Um, I have uh, uh, you know researched and on the year before and um, but uh, his article um, which he called our created ear uh, was published um, back in 2020 in um, the creation magazine and it's interesting he quotes a, a proverb uh, 20 verse 12 which says the hearing ear and the seeing eye the Lord has made them both and looking at the ear and how it works um, becomes, uh, you know, aware straight away when you look at the the physical structure of the ear that there's a a very intricate process underlying our auditory sense. So auditory sense is one of our senses uh, which is able to take sounds which are mechanical vibrations, they're air, vibrating air molecules, and convert them into signals in our brain. And um, one of the reasons why um, Macintosh can, you know, talk as an authority in this area is that um, he has done a lot of work in mathematics as applied to acoustic engineering um, and where he performed actual, you know, primary research on the role of pressure waves with combustion and... um, and that included uh, his research, very small variations in pressure called acoustic waves. Um, and um, these waves, of course, uh, are typical of speech. And although small, they can even affect standing frames. And um, so he did a lot of work on jet engines and um, so uh, and working on the safety of jet engines, which... Um, again, can under certain conditions which are called resonance, where one object vibrates in sympathy with another, can amplify acoustic waves such that the vibrations actually grow 
and can even destroy the fan blades in the rotor of a jet engine. And uh, But this resonance is actually a very important in hearing in the human ear and uh, particularly in hearing the human voice. So sound is, uh, as I said, vibrating air molecules that cause changes in pressure. So these vibrations or movement of the air cause very small pressure changes um, or, and these pulse. And uh, these uh, little pulses travel through the air and they enter the opening in our ear and they reach the eardrum. And so the result of these really small vibrations of the eardrum are then transferred through three tiny bones called ossicles, in, which are in the middle ear cavity, into the cochlea, uh, which is in the inner ear. And um, uh, McIntosh writes that each stage of this system is staggering in its complexity. And um, all mammals have a system where the basic features uh, are similar to the human ear. Um, but there's large differences between the mammals, even in the shape of the ear canal. And this is interesting because uh, the canal amplifies the transmitting sound. And so the, canal, the design of the ear canal is, um, uh, oh, is, is shaped to amplify the sound frequencies that are very relevant to that particular uh, species. And so the frequencies at which sound resonates depend on um, the uh, length, shape and volume of the, um, um, the ear canal. And, um, and so you can think about this, for example, if you think about a flute, a flute vibrates as different frequencies as we change the length of the opening using the different points. And so we can see just by changing the length uh, that the sound wave is travelling then can change the amplification of the frequencies. And um, the human ear canal is about 20 millimetres long. Um, it's interesting, while the cats and dogs have much longer um, canals um, and uh, theirs is uh, uh, bent uh, at right angles to give them a horizontal and vertical component. So their ears are actually designed, cats and dogs are designed to amplify quite different um, frequencies uh, from um, ours. Um, the uh, human ear, of course, we can hear over a wide range of sounds from about 20 cycles per second to nearly 20,000 cycles per second whereas dogs hear from, say, 65 uh, cycles per second to 44,000 cycles per second, so much, much higher, more than double the frequency. Um, cats, of course, have a much wider range. They can um, hear uh, sounds from about 55 cycles per second up to 77,000 cycles per second. So it's about three and a half times our maximum frequency. And it's interesting, of course, as we age, we lose the ability to hear these um, uh, higher sounds. Matter of fact, even in our early 20s, we begin to lose the capability of hearing very high frequencies. So their frequencies above about 12,000 cycles per second. Um, in human voice, we the frequencies when we're speaking, like um, me speaking now, is typically between 125 and 400 cycles per second. Um, 
And um, so um, the harmonics of the human voice are, are quite important between um, 2,000 and 5,000 hertz uh, or cycles per second since this is the region where different vowel sounds are actually distinguished. And, um, and the higher frequencies, of course, enrich the quality of sounds like music. And so the ear canal is just the right length and shape to resonate with speech frequencies um, that we uh, typically use and, and sound of, of song and so forth. Um, one little thing that he points out in his article that I wasn't aware of was that um, uh, there's another fascinating fact he says that's emerged in recent research and it's been shown that all sounds from water are produced by the popping of tiny little bubbles of air trapped in the water. And each bubble vibrates at a frequency that depends on the size of the bubble. So flowing water produces a range of audible frequencies. So the sound of a babbling brook, for example, or waterfall or crashing waves, are made by, you know, billions of tiny little uh, bubbles. And... Um, uh, those bubbles all have uh, slightly different frequencies, but they all lie exactly in the range that the human ear amplifies uh, by acoustic resonance. I thought that was really I interesting. Um, and um, he uh, quotes uh, another verse from uh, from the Bible, Psalms 29.3, where he says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters, which is, yeah, interesting. But from the research point of view, if anyone's interested in looking that up, um, that was an article that was published uh, back in 2015 in the Proceedings of Meetings on Acoustics, um, Volume 24, uh, Article 070006, and it was called, it was by T. Layton, T. Lighton, um, L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, and it was called the Acoustics Bubble, Oceanic Bubble Acoustics and Ultrasonic Cleaning. But that was one of the uh, things that came out with that. Um, the acoustic signal that we get, though, so that vibrating sound once it's gone down the ear um, canal uh, causes the eardrum to vibrate, and this pushes on the malleus or a little hammer that's attached behind, which itself pushes on the incus or anvil bone, which then moves the stapes or stirrup horizontally. And the first two of these bones are only about you know, five millimetres long, uh, with the staples, the smallest bone in our body is uh, in fact a little bit smaller. So these are tiny little bones. Um, and it's interesting, another interesting thing I didn't know before was that these are the only bones in the body that do not grow in size after birth. So it's, um, again, everything is just finely tuned. So little babies can hear quite well. And, um, and it's fascinating that those bones that are involved in amplification of the sound don't grow, whereas, of course, our other bones do. And, um, of course, uh, 
Believers in evolution try to argue that the upper and lower parts of the jaw bones of a reptile moved to become the malleus and incus bones, but they quietly ignore that one of the biggest hurdles of such story is that the jaws of reptiles never stop growing. So you can see that you know people are coming up with all these articles and, and you know trying to solve the evolution fire evolution the major problem of trying to explain how these things can evolve and they they push forward these explanations when there's obvious evidence that they're absolutely impossible and this is a classic example. We are born with bones, they don't grow, but in the evolutionary model they say that these bones evolve from bones that actually do grow and increase in size all all through life. And again, it really, really frustrates me that the evidence, the overwhelming evidence for creation that is everywhere is not being pointed out to our young people as they're learning science and particularly biology. Anyway, getting back to the structure of our ear, the ossicle bones need to amplify the signal because it's now going to pass into a liquid medium in the inner ear, um, which is incompressible. So, uh, because liquid is an impediment to sound, and so it's a particular incompressible uh, liquid. And each of the three are specially shaped to form a lever mechanism, such as the staples attached to the membrane called the oval window in the cochlea, moves approximately three times the distance travelled by the malleus. So there's an amplification there. There is also a tenfold smaller area being vibrated vibrated in the oval window compared to the tympanic membrane of the eardrum so that the energy transfer involved is almost 100%. So ears are super efficient in um, uh, transmitting that audible energy. So the stapes acts like a little pump on the oval window of the uh, membrane and the membrane of the round window expands to compensate for the movement of the liquid inside the cochlea. And so if we were to unwind the cochlea, we'd see uh, a, um, uh, a, a membrane which tapers for higher frequencies inside the cochlea, rather like a xylophone. And so the combined frequencies that come from the oval window vibration are immediately split up into their component frequencies, each causing different parts of the basilar membrane to vibrate. And so this is in effect uh, an instantaneous frequency analyzer, which would make uh, you know, any design engineer marvel. So it's an amazing system that immediately splits the frequencies up. So you can imagine you've got all these combined pressure waves entering the ear, but this is an amazing little m- machine that then splits those um, frequencies up into their individual frequencies in- instantly. He, as a matter of fact, he draws the analogy. Um, he says it's, it's rather like having a miniature gremlin with constant penis skills playing the keyboard in your inner ear. And um, the final part of the hearing system involves an organ called the corti, uh, which runs along the top of this basilar membrane. Remember, so it's the membrane that splits all the frequencies up into and separates them all. And this has tiny little hairs uh, called stereocilia on it, which send an electrical signal to each 
frequency or according to its frequency excited by the incoming signal. So it's amazing that each tiny hair called a cilium, which is 250 millionths of a millimetre thick, right? 250 millionths of a millimetre thick. Uh, or a quarter of a thousandth of a millimetre thick. So um, they're less than one-seventieth of the thickness of the thinnest human hair. And so these tiny little hairs, when disturbed by uh, a special membrane called the tectorial membrane, which touches the cilia above, causes the operation of literally a mechanical spring attached to the top of one hair. And this tiny little spring is only a few nanometers thick and stretches about 100 nanometers long. And so, again, a nanometer is a millionth of a millimeter. Um, And so we're getting down towards the molecular scale. The other end pulls on a tiny trapdoor at the side of an adjacent cilium, one of the smallest examples of mechanical springs. This open trapdoor then allows charged ions in the fluid-filled cochlea to excite ganglion nerves to send the signal to different parts of the cerebral cortex in the brain, depending on whether it is music or speech. For low frequencies, there's one nerve for each change in hertz, so there's a separate nerve for each different cycle per second. In the upper range, there's one nerve for every two to three um, cycles per second. So it's sort of there'd be the one nerve for, say, 12,000, 12,001, 12,002 cycles per second, or 12,051, 12,052, 12,053, those individual frequencies. So this, the human ear splits frequencies up into individual frequencies. You know, when you think about this amazing coordinated design and it's all encoded in the DNA, evolutionists have to believe, right, that random mutations to the DNA produce this amazing complex system. Random, blind mutations to the DNA produce this amazing coordinated system and the mechanisms for building it as the human embryo develops, or any mammal embryo. And so we can see, you know, the evidence is overwhelming for supernatural creation of this amazing machine. Random blind mutations aren't going to be used a complex machine like that works, let alone uh, complex machines for, you know, the other 5,000 plus mammals that there are in the, in the world, plus all the other, you know, reptiles and birds and all their individual hearing as well that all suits them. We have overwhelming evidence for a supernatural creator designer that we call God. And it really frustrates me that you know, young people aren't being taught this information, this evidence of being pointed out to them in the way that points to the creator. And that's why I would like to encourage you know, everyone listening to these programs or if you come across a really good book 
explaining the evidence for creation. And my book, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe on Creation, you can download it free on creation.com. Just do a search for the book um, and it'll come up there. You can read all the individual chapters um, by all the scientists. And this information needs to get out and I would like to really encourage people to uh, put it up on your uh, Facebook pages, um, on Twitter pages, tell people about it, that there is evidence out there that there is a creator God. And, of course, details of that creator God are found in the Bible too as we accumulate evidence all the time for the historical accuracy of the Bible. You've been listening to Faith and Science Uh, I'm Dr. John Ashton. And remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, uh, just uh, Google 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Click on the radio button and, um, and listen to the Faith and Science program. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.